My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. This morning, uh, I'm going to be preaching on the cornerstone, the consuming fire, and the narrow path, taking selections from each of the three readings today and then commenting on their commonalities and what they have to show us this morning. So the first text I'll be speaking about is Isaiah 28:16, where the prophet says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be shaken or put to shame. So a few months ago, when uh, the damage was done, uh, after the damage to our bell tower was beginning to be repaired, uh, we had the opportunity to pull out the cornerstone of the church building. And in the cornerstone was a metal box. And after we opened the metal box, we found a few items. And there were pictures, uh, and then there was an old letter that was unfortunately too too damaged by time and weathered to to be able to to make out. But all of these items, the people who put them in the, the, the cornerstone, were important markers of the history of our congregation. And this then led us to meeting to decide when we put it back, what from our own era should we put in for other people to discover in the future should they ever remove it and reopen it. And I remember one of the people spoke up at the meeting and said, a mask. (laughs) Cornerstones not only serve as a building guide, orienting those constructing the building as, as they construct on top of it, but they also had another role in the ancient world. And the architecture website, New Studio Architecture, made the following comment about cornerstones. In ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian cultures, the equivalent of a groundbreaking ceremony was the foundation ritual, which allowed the gods to protect the building. Foundation deposits or hollowed out stones filled with small vessels, animal deposits, and other symbolic items were standard in the construction of temples, palaces, tombs, and forts. Depending on the type of structure, the deposits were placed at the corners of buildings or at points of importance in a structure such as the entrance. This ensured the remains of the building's uh, original contents were preserved with the structure throughout its life. Right, so cornerstones, basically what the author is saying is in the ancient world, cornerstones, they weren't just for aesthetics. They weren't just there to make something look good. They weren't just there because it was a guide to constructing the rest of the structure. Cornerstones had a spiritual function in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, there was no separation between the the sacred and the secular. There was no separation between the spiritual and the natural. That point of view was completely unknown to them. They were one and the same, bound together, only to be violently separated in the modern world. And the difference, though, between what I've just said and the cornerstone mentioned in the text from Isaiah is that instead of the cornerstone being filled with symbolic items being consecrated to other gods for other purposes, the cornerstone itself is what is hallowed and sacred. And this cornerstone is placed in order to counteract something. Verse 15 says, Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. 
When the overwhelming whip passes through it, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. They have made a covenant with death and an agreement with Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave or the places of departed spirits. God responds to this by laying a new cornerstone in place of the covenant of death his people have made with the grave and death itself, right? So you have this imagery of, of the grave and, and, and death being the cornerstone upon which that the people who knew better, who should have known better, like that guy driving his motorcycle, he should be here at church on a Sunday listening, right? <laughs> they should have known better. They've built their foundation upon death in a partnership with the grave, thinking that that will keep them safe from their enemies. And God responds to this by laying a new cornerstone in the place of the covenant of death. Lies will no longer be a refuge as God's justice and righteousness sweep it all away. The satanic realm of death and sin will no longer be something that we are beholden to as the new cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And his justice and righteousness is the new plumb line. The plumb line, the way that indicates how we can work straight. The plumb line doesn't shift, but always points true. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the cornerstone the builders has rejected, but he has become the chief cornerstone as his kingdom is built and advances over the kingdoms of this world. Let's talk about consuming fire. In the text from Hebrews... I'll just read a brief selection. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This just popped into my head right now. If, if the scriptures are, are, are asking us to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, I mean, I think we could take that to indicate that there is worship that God considers unacceptable. Ooh, we don't like to think that way, I think. Clown liturgies. Eh, maybe God might, God might not find that acceptable, <laughs> right? There's acceptable that God, worship that God accepts and worship that God rejects. Worship offered to God in reverence and awe. Anyway, so in the month of October 2020, uh, there was a massive wildfire that burned through California. And something around 100,000 people were displaced and 8,000 acres were completely destroyed. And the fire was found to have been started by a cigarette butt that had not been completely extinguished. This combined with dry weather and high winds led to a massive conflagration. And this isn't the first time or the last that this portion of the country has experienced serious fires. But, but, but dry weather and high winds ensure that fire of this sort spreads quickly. And these types of fires are incredibly dangerous places to be, often causing the firefighters that fight them to be seriously injured or killed in the process of trying to extinguish them or mitigate damage. And fire that consumes in this manner is highly uncontrollable. Try to control it, and the efforts to try and put it out are often futile. Now, this is an imperfect and flawed picture. 
but it gives some shape to the words that we've heard read from the epistle to the Hebrews this morning, where the author states, our God is a consuming fire. We can't control God. I think that's part of the lesson of God being a consuming fire. We can't control God. We can't make God do what we want God to do. And worship in the ancient world was directed towards that end, trying to manipulate the gods to do something that the worshiper wanted to happen. But that's not how we worship the true God, the living God. We cannot manipulate God. We cannot say, God, I've done my part, now you have to do yours. We cannot control God. And any worship that attempts to control God will meet with serious disaster. When a consuming fire is approached, consuming wildfires, firefighters have to be ready. They have to have the right equipment. They have to have the right supplies. They have to have the support structure in place that will allow them to continue to fight the fire. They have to have enough firefighters to help, and they need public cooperation and evacuation. In other words, fighting a wildfire is serious business. And if fighting wildfires in California is serious business, how much more is approaching the living God? We don't like to think of God as a consuming fire because much of the church has fallen or become subject to therapeutic models of God. That when the Bible speaks of the wrath of God, that that's just entirely mythological. That God exists to affirm everything that we already think and believe is true. A God that requires absolutely or asks absolutely nothing from us. A God that we don't have to prepare to enter his presence. And why do you think we confess our sin every Sunday, (laughs) particularly when we have Holy Communion? To be confronted by the living God of Scripture puts all of this into its proper place. In the Scriptures, when human sin enters God's presence, disastrous results follow, not because God wants to lash out or is angry, but because God is holy. And holiness and sin cannot occupy the same space. And when the absolute holiness of God encounters the sinfulness of humanity, the sinfulness cannot exist in his presence. That sin will be consumed, and those who bear it or spread it will be consumed. Which is why the text in Hebrews talks about the shaking that will happen, which is a speaking of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as we confess to judge the living and the dead. And when Isaiah is brought to God's throne, when he comes into the presence of God, the first thing he says is, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. And before he can be sent, what happens to him? The angel has to take the fiery coal off of the, offer, uh, offer, off of the altar of heaven and place it and cleanse him. And then he can go. And when Peter, when Jesus is in the boat with Peter and he says, cast your nets over here, Peter says, we've been doing this all night. And Jesus is like, trust me. So Peter's like, all right. So they do. 
and they haul in a bunch of fish. What does Peter say to Jesus? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus says, follow me. Jesus calls him to follow him. And like Isaiah, whose mouth was cleansed by the angel bearing a fiery coal from the heavenly altar. Now Peter is cleansed by following his Lord. We are cleansed at the Lord's table and altar where his body and blood are placed on our lips and where we feast and are cleansed. And whenever we have Holy Communion, I always say, before we come up to receive, the holy things for God's holy people. The consuming fire of God drives us towards holiness so that what is sinful in us can be burned away. Because consuming fire, unlike the wildfires in California, the consuming fire is not meant to be destructive. Consuming fire, the consuming fire of God is meant to be purgative. So in the way that you would purify a metal, what do, how do you purify metal? Well, you got to put it in the fire and melt it and hammer out the impurities until what is impure in that metal is gone and the pure metal remains. That's what the consuming fire of God is like. It is something that purifies us, that continually refines us. Scripture uses this terminology. It's something that continually makes us holy. Because being holy is not just a one-off thing. Being holy is not just I was baptized when I was a baby, or I went to a Billy Graham, or he's dead now, a revival meeting, and I prayed the sinner's prayer or whatever, and that's the moment I became holy, and that said, holiness is our ongoing participation in the life of God. And then finally, the narrow door, Luke 13, 23 to 24. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When Shantae and I first moved into our house, we had a, we had a large box spring. Right? We had our mattress. And for some, I don't know why we bought it. We bought this big box spring. And try as we might, we could not get this box spring up our stairs and through our door. It was just, our stairs are small. It's an old house. And we just couldn't quite, and it would have made no sense to try and like cut it. We tried maybe this angle, maybe this angle. Maybe if I stand at 45 degrees and you stand at 90 degrees and we use the gravity of the earth to try and throw it around the corner, maybe it'll go up the stairs. You know, one of those situations. We've all had that, right? Moving our stuff. We couldn't get it up the, the stairs and we couldn't get it through the door that would help us to get it up to our room. So we had to leave the box spring downstairs. And there it stayed for like three weeks until she got mad at me. And I was like, oh yeah, and I put it on Facebook and donated it. We couldn't get rid of it. Well, we couldn't use it for its purpose, right? And when I read Jesus speaking of the narrow door, I think of the narrow door in this way. And based on Jesus' initial response here, we take this to mean that Jesus saying that the door is narrow, we take it to mean that he's saying few will be saved because few people will enter the narrow door. But I think that this is overly pessimistic. And even though on the surface it seems few will enter, Jesus builds off of that, though, and he talks about the feast and the door of the feast being closed and people knocking on the door saying, let me in, and the, and the person in charge of the feast saying, I don't know you. 
he says to them, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying the people who are going to make it through this narrow door, it's going to be this multitude of people from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And they're all going to come in with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not you guys. See, the people in Jesus' teaching say to him, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our street. What's missing from that? We ate and drank and taught as you taught. What's missing is we heard your words and obeyed them. We forsook all and followed you. We repented so that we can join in the feast in God's kingdom. They trusted in their identity as God's people. While identity doesn't matter so much as faith and faithfulness to God. See, the narrow door causes us to approach it differently than a widely flung open set of French doors. Or those really cool, like, what, accordion ones that kind of do that accordion thing and you open them up. To enter a narrow door, we might have to turn sideways, especially for carrying something. But that might not be enough. We might have to place items on the ground or to get something through a narrow door so we can get through it with it, we might have to disassemble them. And in doing so, we may find it's not worth trying to fit the item through the door at all, so we leave it behind so we can at least get through. The door that Jesus speaks of here leads to eternal life. All we have to do is walk through it. But we don't want to leave the baggage behind that we might have to let go of. The, purgative, the things that the fire of God is trying to burn out of us. We don't want to leave those things behind because maybe we find our identity in them. Maybe we find authenticity in them. Maybe we find our, sta our, our standing and our friends and family, whatever it is. We don't want to leave it behind. And we may find ourselves shut out of the feast. See, what the cornerstone, the consuming fire, and the narrow door, what they all have in common is that all three are working for our salvation, for our sanctification, for our perfection, our maturity in Christ, our holiness. And the message that these three symbols show us today is that we should not resist the purifying fire of God, the call to strive for holiness without which we cannot see the Lord and the cornerstone of the new building that God has constructed through his son and the giving and the sending of his son who loved us and who gave himself for us. And that's where it all begins for us, brothers and sisters. It's by faith in and faithfulness to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the one by whom and through whom we shape and live our lives. Let us not be like those who were shut out at the feast. Let us be of those who come from the north and the south and the east and the west. They get to sit and feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. And to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Zion's Stone Church. 
We're in the middle of a building repair campaign, and if you'd like to help, please go to www.gofundme.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We'd appreciate anything you'd be able to donate. If you're ever in the area, you're always welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 10.15 a.m. God bless you.